Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, this is David Feingold, your host for the Future of Higher Education podcast on the New Books Network and the president of Chatham University. I'm back today with Mark Nordenberg, the Chancellor Emeritus of the University of Pittsburgh, to continue our discussion about his very successful tenure uh, in helping to make Pitt one of the leading research universities in the country. Mark, uh, great to have you back. Um, I'd love if if you would start just to share what, when you look back on your nearly 20 years in in leading Pitt, what, what, what are the accomplishments you're most proud of from that tenure? It's hard uh, to look back on two decades and pick one thing. And it's interesting because there are uh, things that you can measure. Uh, So I'm proud of the fact that uh, we started out with a little over 7,000 applications. And uh, this year, Pitt received more than 52,000 applications for uh, its undergraduate programs. And uh, to give credit, not all of that growth uh, occurred under me, but uh, a lot of it did, and the momentum was built. Or, you know, we started out in the top 25 in NIH funding, which already put us in good company, uh, but we ended up in the top five. Now, I'm proud of things you can measure. Uh, I'm proud of things that you can see uh, when you stroll the campus and you look at how it was changed, whether that's the Peterson Event Center for basketball or the new residence halls or the uh, third biomedical science tower or uh, the Shenley Plaza Park. Uh, Those all are lasting contributions. But the thing I've probably most proud of is something that you can't measure or see. And that is that everybody became proud uh, of being a part of Pitt. Uh, And that was true of faculty. uh, It was true of staff. uh, It was true of students. uh, And, uh, you know, no matter what their job was, Uh, People thought that they were a part of something larger, a part of something good, and a part of something that was moving in the right direction. Uh, And, you know, that's the kind of thing that helps elevate everything you're trying to do. And so uh, as a guy who's really interested in people, uh, that may be the thing I'm most proud of. Well, and, and I think, you know, a testament to that, as I said, when we were talking uh, for, for the last episode, um, as someone who has only been in Pittsburgh for the last six years and has only known Pitt in that state, the idea that, you know, it was in a very different place when you first started, I, I think it's really tangible to see that pride, seeing the, the blue and gold and, 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 and the way in which people do that. It, it must also be very gratifying to you as, as you look around the campus and all the, the, the impact to see a, a dorm uh, name for you, uh, a, a cafe uh, with where, where students like to hang out. And, and you know, perhaps most of all, t- uh, $10 million in scholarships um, in your honor um, that are, are, are helping to support really talented students coming to the university. Uh, those are wonderful things. And uh, what I should make clear, because I think this is a distinguishing feature too, is that on two different occasions, 
uh, members of the board of trustees and alumni leaders and other friends of the university contributed their own money to do this. Uh, so it wasn't the board waving a wand and saying, well, we're going to create a professorship in Mark's name. They contributed two and a half million dollars for that. Uh, and those were genuine contributions to the uh, scholarship fund. And uh, it does make me feel great. But that's a reflection, too, of the quality of people I was working with and the relationship we had as partners. And obviously, a, a lot of, of wonderful and very high-impact successes to look back on. What, what was the biggest appoint, disappointment for you over those, those, those two decades? Uh, the, the single dis- biggest disappointment for me was uh, seeing the uh, diminished uh, value uh, that uh, some people placed on higher education. Uh, you know, when I came to Pittsburgh for the first time uh, as a high school senior in the mid-1960s, it was quite a different environment. That was a time when community colleges were being created, uh, when Pitt and Temple joined Penn State as state-related public universities, uh, when the Pennsylvania Education Higher Education Assistance Agency was created. Uh, there was an unquestioned value assigned to uh, higher education, both by the public and by uh, policymakers and elected officials. And we all have seen uh, that diminishing over the course of the past decade, I would say, uh, in particular. Uh, I remember sitting in a uh, pit board meeting and I began talking about this as a problem and former Governor Thornburg was on the board and he looked at me and he thought, well, geez, uh, if there are trends like this, we've got to do something about it. Uh, But I don't think uh, either we pit or we, the higher education community, uh, has been able to uh, you know, turn the tide uh, in this uh, oh, anti-intellectual, anti-institutional uh, flow. And, and I say that, by the way, David, uh, as someone who doesn't believe everybody needs to go to college, or who has great respect for institutions that provide vocational, technical uh, training, degrees or certificates that are short of a uh, four-year baccalaureate. In fact, I've done workforce development studies where I have made those statements. Uh, But I think the kind of dismissive attitude that some now seem to have uh, toward colleges and universities and the historic, current, and future contributions that will be tied to them is too bad. Yeah, no, I, I mean, I think what you're pointing to is is absolutely a national trend that 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 all of us in in higher ed leadership are dealing with. It's interesting though because I would think objectively, if you look back to when you, when you started as chancellor, the the importance, the role of higher education within Pittsburgh and the region was arguably much more highly appreciated, right? Uh, part of that shift from steel and heavy manufacturing to eds and meds 
was, I think, a recognition that the role that the universities were playing in not just their direct employment, but the whole future success of the city was greater than ever. Well, certainly we came to be depended upon in a different way. Uh, And it was very satisfying to be able to respond to that call uh, and help to uh, fuel the progress that uh, occurred throughout the region. Uh, And then to say something about the flip side, which you will understand, uh, you know, we were very lucky to be in Pittsburgh uh, because I do think that uh, views of education have changed. Uh, People might have thought uh, back when I was a high school student that if you could go out into the middle of nowhere with just you and your books, you'd get your best learning experience. And today people think, Well, if you can find a good institution uh, in an attractive urban setting, you probably will learn more about life in the 21st century in America. And Pittsburgh is really perfect for that. You know, it's big enough that interesting things are always happening. Uh, It's small enough that it's manageable. If you're a student and you're just going to be someplace for a few years, you can still feel a part of it. Uh, and, and I will say I always have thought uh, that Chatham had particular advantages in that way. I think it is a distinctive institution. Uh, your campus, uh, to describe it as beautiful, is an understatement and nestled where it is, uh, kind of a, uh, a place of peace almost. Uh, but with all of the energy and the city, almost kind of just across the street, uh, you know, I think we both have a deep appreciation for what setting means for an institution. No question. I, I do think that one of the really distinctive things that students benefit from, the city benefits from, is not just the concentration of the higher ed institutions, but their level of cooperation. We talked a bit about last time about the special relationship you built with Jerry Cohen and working with Carnegie Mellon, but for an institution like Chatham, for the students to be able to take classes at Pitt and CMU just down the road and vice versa, and the fact that all those institutions really play well together, which you don't see in a lot of the other big higher education cities in the U.S. Do you have a sense of what, what, what that is, what, what's contributed to that level of cooperation? Well, I don't know who actually uh, started uh, Peachy, uh, but whoever did that did us all a favor because there was a structure uh, that uh, carried with it an expectation that we all would get together as presidents on a regular basis and talk about our shared interests and uh, challenges. Uh, and, and again, I, I think that the institutions in Pittsburgh are sufficiently distinctive uh, that it's always easier than it might be in other places to think about uh, collaboration as opposed to competition. And I think Pittsburgh has assets too that are distinctive for a city of its size. When you look at culture and the arts, uh, you look at sports, 
there are things that uh, ought to be a part of a young person's uh, overall growth uh, that can be uh, easily obtained here. And we as colleges and universities have found ways to uh, kind of make that uh, set of community resources uh, more easily accessible to students, which is important too. Mark, last time we talked about the fact that your deep experience as a law school dean, as the acting provost, um, gave you a great leg up as a chancellor because you had the relationships, you had the credibility uh, within the institution. But but being a chancellor of, of, a, of a major research university like Pitt, particularly one with such a large medical component to it as well, um, it is a very challenging job, right? Even before the most recent challenge. What, what were the other attributes, do you think, that enabled you to be successful in that role in balancing all the different aspects to, to the job of chancellor? Well, I'm smiling as you ask this question and you refer to the medical school because I'm thinking about uh, one of the early statements that uh, Jerry Cohen, then the president of Carnegie Mellon, made to me. And I know you've had Jerry as a guest. He looked at me one day and he said, Mark, I've got the greatest job in the world, Uh, a major university without a medical school, a law school, or big time sports. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, you know, it, it caused me to stop and think a little bit. Uh, but actually, every one of those things uh, added richness to the institution. It certainly, they added complexity to the uh, job. Uh, but, you know, the two bits of advice that... Uh, might be helpful, uh, might actually go to people who are thinking about whether they want to be a president or not. Uh, One is you really need to like to work. Uh, And, uh, you know, because if you ever think that you've uh, clicked everything off of your agenda, what that really means is you're not thinking ambitiously enough. Uh, There uh, always are other things that you could be doing to make your uh, home institution uh, better. Uh, And second, that I think you've got to be energized by being around people. It it really is a uh, people job. You have so many constituent groups, and, and you know that at Chatham. You're sitting in the middle of all of them. You see your faculty all the time. You see your students all the time. You see your neighbors all the time. You're reaching out to alumni all the time. If you don't enjoy that kind of uh, human interaction, uh, the job probably is going to wear you down in a short period of time. Uh, In terms of, uh, you know, what might have been some of the attributes that uh, made me uh, as successful as I was, and I'll let people be judge, others be the judge of how that was, you know, uh, uh, I do like to work. I just like to get things done. And I have real stamina. Uh, I might not be as smart, I might not be as quick, but I I feel like I can outwork almost uh, anyone. Uh, 
And I, I think that the ability to communicate uh, both orally and in written work uh, is really crucial because if you can't do that, uh, you're going to add to your list of problems. And if you can do it, uh, you're going to be able to <clears throat> present things in a way uh, that at least gets people to look at what you're saying in the most favorable light. They may not always agree with you, but, but that's life. And those are things you can't avoid, but you can avoid the uh, missteps that are uh, caused by uh, uh, miscommunication. And, you know, I, I have said on occasion that the pitch chancellor's job was the perfect job for me, and I feel that way. Uh, at the same time, uh, no job is perfect. Uh, I mean, you, you may be in your office on a Saturday or Sunday uh, answering correspondence, and you'd rather be someplace else. But as long as you have a, uh, you know, appreciation for the fact that all jobs are like that. Uh, and, uh, you, you know, if you get through this part of the job that you don't find to be exhilarating, you're still contributing to the mission. Yeah. And, you know, you, no you noted that one of the the characteristics of a job, particularly one is in as large and multifaceted a university as, as Pitt, um, is that there's always something more to do. Right, it, it's it, it's not a job that's certainly nine to five. Much more like twenty four seven. How did you maintain the balance and stamina? I mean, the average tenure of college university presidents now is getting down about five years. So you were almost four x that. How did you sustain yourself and renew yourself over that period so that you could keep keep things moving forward? Well, I did have great support from my wife and my kids. Uh, which was important. I had a great team around me. Uh, and I tend to think that uh, almost everything in life is better if it's shared. Uh, the uh, triumphs are a little bit sweeter and the disappointments aren't quite as bitter. Uh, and uh, we had a team that really was a team. And, uh, you know, uh, when you can look at a range of people and see what they're doing and, and say to yourself, well, I couldn't have done that nearly as well, then you know you've uh, got a, a good team. The other thing I would say, David, is that things tended to come in cycles uh, so that uh, you, you know, the opportunities and the challenges uh, weren't constant. There were always new things coming up. Uh, and because I like people and I believe in universities, you know, there were always chances for me to interact with faculty members, let's say, who were doing things out of my area and uh, you know, even when I'd been in the job for 10 years, there were plenty of people I hadn't had the chance to uh, interact with directly. Uh, so that was not so much of a problem for me. Yep. And and when you think about you and your team, are there any particular challenges, you know, issues that came up that really strike you that this was something that was, you know, uh, 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 you really had to dig into, and how did you go about resolving those? 
Conference realignment, of course, was something that affected many institutions. Uh, we also had a, a distinctive experience that uh, said something about building teams. Uh, we went through a period of a few months uh, where we were receiving uh, one after another uh, bomb threats being sent through uh, anonymizing remailers. Uh, and uh, so we had to come together as a team in a different kind of way. Uh, we also had to reach out and partner with other teams like the U.S. Attorney and the FBI and the uh, City of Pittsburgh Police. Uh, but, but one thing I thought about that experience was telling. Uh, ultimately, many of the threats came uh, directed to residence halls in the middle of the night. Uh, and so students were getting up and they were uh, being evacuated to other central locations on campus. And I said to the team, uh, you know, if the students are going through this experience, uh, they should know that we're sharing it with them. Uh, and so I'd get alerted if there was a bomb threat, and I'd get up if it was three o'clock in the morning, I'd put on a suit, I'd come into campus. Uh, and so did the members of my immediate team, so did people like our uh, athletic coaches. Uh, and, uh, you know, the students really appreciate it. Uh, I think one of the things that this uh, uh, threatener was doing was trying to drive a wedge between the uh, students and the administration. Uh, and in fact, it just worked the other way. Uh, that is, we had our highest level of freshman to sophomore retention uh, that year than we had ever had. Uh, now, it did hurt us in terms of freshman admissions because families would come to campus and they would see the extra security in place and uh, probably say, well, you know, there are a lot of good choices. Why would I make this one? We still had a good year, but it wasn't what we uh, expected. And, and what I would say to maybe go back to a point I just made, uh, I always was looking for talented people. Uh, I was looking for people who I knew would be driven principally by uh, their commitment to the institutional mission as opposed to money or any other extraneous things. Uh, and we had a, uh, a kind of a culture uh, that when the team would get together in my office, uh, people would uh, feel free to express their views, whether they coincided with mine or not. Uh, but then once a decision was made, uh, everybody pulled together. Uh, and it did make life more satisfying. Um, just to come back to the athletic realignment, um, as I believe was the case, you you had been in the Big East, which was breaking up, and you made the decision to go with the ACC. Um, as I think you know, I was at Rutgers before Chatham. They, they ended up joining the Big Ten. A, a lot of people might have thought the reverse would have made the case, right? Rutgers is on the eastern seaboard, uh, Pitt right in the midst of uh, the you know, sort of the East Midwest boundary and close to a lot of the um, the Big Ten powers. How, how did that 
decision come about and and ultimately leading to to the ACC is it well first let me say that we work very hard to pick put keep the big east together uh, and i would say that the presidents of Notre Dame Georgetown and i uh, really led that effort uh, and we thought if we could get everybody in the conference to commit to staying in the conference, then we could keep it whole. Uh, but uh, other institutions, including Rutgers, uh, weren't willing to make that commitment. And in fairness, uh, the presidents of the other institutions may not have been authorized to make that kind of commitment because boards do get involved in these things, too. Uh, you know, I should make clear that there was a sequencing of things here. Uh, so I don't want to uh, leave anyone with the impression that we had an offer from the Big Ten, which we spurned. Uh, we went into the ACC, uh, and uh, Rutgers later made its uh, uh, move into the Big Ten. Uh there were a number of things that made the uh, ACC uh, very attractive to me. Uh, it's a collection of fine institutions. Uh, there is a kind of diversity within the institutional members of the uh, ACC that doesn't exist in the Big Ten. Uh, and, uh, you know, we're we're not as big as most of the Big Ten institutions. We have a higher percentage of our student body and graduate and professional programs than most of the institutions in the Big Ten. We don't have agricultural programs that are important in so many of the uh, Big Ten universities. So there uh, were ways in which the ACC, with its a uh, diverse mix of institutions was appealing to us. And beyond that, uh, even though we're not quite on the Atlantic coast, we are an institution that always has principally looked east. Uh, we're on the western border of Pennsylvania. Certainly we have strong pockets of uh, loyal alums in Ohio and all the way to California. But, you know, we've always drawn more of our students from the East Coast. We always have placed more of our graduates on the East Coast. Uh, and so to be in a conference that stretched from, uh, you know, Syracuse and Boston uh, down to Miami, uh, was uh, really appealing because we have a lot of institutional connections to those areas that athletics would help us nurture. Yep. No, you know, I, 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 two of my former hometowns are Minneapolis and Madison, uh, both of which I love, uh, but we don't have any strong existing connections to those communities the way we did to the communities of the ACC. So Mark, given your obvious uh, love for the institution and and the fact that you thrived in the role, how, how did you decide uh, when was the right time for you to step down? Yeah, you know, first, I, I, I had a warning from Judy Roden, who had been the 
president at Penn and at the time was the president of the Rockefeller Foundation. Uh, she came in and was our commencement speaker one year. And uh, the two of us were just uh, sitting and comparing notes. And, and she said to me, I think I'd been in office for 10 or almost 10 years then. And she said, well, you know, you never know what could go wrong. Everything has gone so right. Maybe you ought to be thinking about uh, when you should leave. Uh, in my own mind, I was thinking more about what would be a good time for the institution uh, and also what would be a good time for me in terms of uh, landing well uh, for the rest of my career because I wasn't uh, ready to stop working. Uh, I actually had uh, decided that I was going to step down earlier. Uh, I had advised the chair of the board. Uh, he had selected the chair of the search committee. Uh, I had uh, met with the two of them. <clears throat> and then it became clear to me that there were going to be significant challenges with respect to state funding in Harrisburg. And I knew that uh, even if, as I hoped, uh, they would recruit a successor who was far smarter and more broadly talented than I was. Uh, I, I knew that relationships were going to be critically important if we were going to meet that challenge. Uh, and so I uh, uh, decided in consultation with the board chair that uh, I would stay longer. Uh, but I always had, had this worry. You know, I tried to uh, step down as law school dean <clears throat> before they would let me because I wanted to go back and reestablish my faculty roots. Uh, and the same was true with the other administrative positions that I held. Uh, so looking to the university's future and looking to my future uh, were the two driving forces in selecting the time. And had you had in mind the, the role you have now as the head of the Institute of Politics? And had you done things to kind of prepare for that transition? No, I, I was always actively involved in the Institute of Politics because it actually is nested in the chancellor's office. Uh, but I assumed that I would uh, reclaim my position on the law faculty. Uh, again, I said, I won't say whether I was a good chancellor, I won't say whether I was a good dean, but I was a good professor. Uh, and so that had some appeal to me. And those positions do carry with them a degree of freedom, as we discussed before. Uh, things in the Institute of Politics were going uh, so well that I would not have uh, intruded uh, except for an invitation. And uh, the uh, then director of the Institute uh, actually came to my chief of staff uh, and said, you know, if Mark would be interested, I think this would be perfect for the Institute and it would be uh, perfect for me. Uh, and then, of course, I also uh, needed to 
clear that with my successor to make certain uh, that would not be incompatible with uh, his plans and wishes, and he was encouraging. Uh, so I've been at that now for, you know, we're coming up on eight years, uh, and it has been an absolutely uh, great next chapter for me. And, and, you know, David, you will find this too. Uh, you know, I, I know I could have gone back to the law school uh, and could have taught my courses again, uh, but they can get somebody else to teach those courses. Uh, as a uh, former chancellor, uh, I had an array of experiences and a network of connections, uh, including, you know, the elected officials who are so important to the Institute of Politics uh, that I thought, and clearly the director of the Institute thought, well, here's a, uh, here's someplace you could make a distinctive contribution. Nobody can come in and uh, do what you could do. And so that was very appealing to me. And then most recently, you've taken on a, a- a significant additional role and one that was pretty fraught um, in in leading the commission that was charged with the once a decade redistricting uh, in the state. Um, that can you talk about how that came about and your own decision on taking that role on? Well, you know, it's interesting too because at the time of every cen- a census uh, since nineteen ninety. Uh, I have been approached by legislative leaders about whether I would do this. Uh, And uh, when it came around this time, uh, it came in a different way. Uh, That is, I uh, received a call from uh, one of the justices of the Supreme Court, uh, someone who was about to become chief justice. And he said he was calling on behalf of the current chief justice and himself, uh, that uh, they did not want to do anything that would suggest they thought the four members of the commission who are defined constitutionally as the four legislative caucus leaders uh, could not come to agreement on a chair. Uh, But they never had been able to. Uh, And but they wanted to be prepared. Uh, So he wanted to talk to me about whether I would do this. Uh, My initial feeling was, no, I would not, because it was going to be uh, a very time-consuming, it's highly partisan, uh, and these are polarized times. And But I talked it over with my wife, Uh, I thought about who I might be able to attract to the team. Uh, The chief justice said, you're plan A and we don't have a plan B. Uh, And uh, so in the end, I said that if uh, the four other members of the commission could not reach agreement and it came to the court, I would be inclined to say yes. And so... Those four commission members sent their letter to the chief justice on a Friday afternoon saying they could not come to an agreement on Monday morning. He called me to confirm on Monday afternoon the uh, order was signed. 
and uh, I was into a new adventure. And and how did that role? Because as you say, we're in very partisan times. It was a difficult process, even when it wasn't so partisan. How did that compare with the role as as a university chancellor in terms of the skills you had to bring and, and getting to the ultimate outcome? Well, I think that uh, there were some clear similarities. Now, one of the things I would say that if I had done this 10 or 20 years ago, uh, I would have known all of the uh, caucus leaders well. Uh, on this occasion, I knew one well. I, I knew a second somewhat, uh, and really didn't know the other two at all. So there were relationships to build. Uh, But, uh, you know, one thing about being an academic leader is you are, uh, your natural inclinations to be respectful and open, if you have them, are reinforced. Uh, And we made this a very respectful, uh, open process. I'm pretty good at organizing things. I'm pretty good when it comes to process and procedure, which was my uh, legal specialty as a uh, teacher. Uh, So it was not easy. It was grueling work, uh, and it was intense at periods of time. Uh, It certainly became partisan at the end, uh, and uh, there were, uh, you know, social media and other uh, attacks uh, launched on me. But somebody had to do it. Uh, I believe in democracy. I love Pennsylvania, which has been my home state now, if you combine stints uh, for close to 50 years. Uh, So in the end, the question became, uh, why wouldn't I do it? So, so Mark, you, you've already shared a couple of key attributes, things for people who might want to be a president or chancellor that, that they need to understand about the job. A- any parting advice for folks as they think about this role? It's obviously, you know, it's always been a challenging one, but that same partisanship and where we are as a society seems to be making it even more so. When you when you are mentoring people or or advising folks who may be thinking about it, what 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 sort of guidance do you give? Well, and let me say, you would have a form of guidance to give that I don't have, uh, because uh, as you noted in our first segment, uh, I have been at pit most of my adult life, uh, and so it's kind of like being asked to do something for Pennsylvania. Well, you know, everything I did here at the university uh, involved a uh, very, very large reservoir of love and gratitude to the institution uh, that I would not have had if I had uh, done it elsewhere. Uh, I would say that people ought to go in with their eyes open. Uh, And as is true with any decision, you shouldn't get swept off your feet like, oh, being a president would be great. Uh, You ought to take a look at the circumstances you will be inheriting, uh, the obvious challenges and opportunities, uh, and decide whether you think you can make a difference 
whether they uh, match your uh, talent set. And in some cases, uh, you may not be able to make a difference just because of the uh, setting. So I have had, uh, over the course of the years, uh, conversations with people who I thought would be good presidents, but I would say, you know, if I was in your position, uh, I wouldn't pursue this presidency, and here's why. Uh, and I think you'd be better off to wait, uh, because I, I think a bad experience as a yeah, president is not the way most people want to, uh, you know, spend an important part of their careers. And and when making that determination about whether that's the right rule, I mean, there are some factors like, you know, the financial viability of an institution that are pretty obvious. Were there other things that you, you put sort of high on your list? Because I assume in addition to whether an institution is healthy or not, there there may also be fit issues in terms of, is this person right for this institution at this moment in time. Yeah, that's right. You know, uh, someone's background or objectives uh, may not mesh, for example, with the uh, strengths and institutional uh, objectives. Now, it could be uh, that maybe the institution is looking to change the balance of its strengths, in which case uh, it might be a nice fit. On the other hand, if that's not the case, and, and I think, you know, looking at, uh, you know, the, uh, uh, the status of relationships between the faculty and the administration, uh, you know, how energized the alumni feel, uh, I, I think, again, going back to Chatham, I, I just think that there are a world of opportunities in an institution that already is taking advantage of them. Uh, so if I was looking at Chatham, I would say, well, here's a place where I could be happy uh, pushing progress because there are opportunities. And, uh, and yet just by putting Chatham where it is, you can imagine institutions that don't have any of the natural prospects that uh, Chatham does. And you might say, well, this is just going to be a lot of work. But uh, <laughs> in the end, I'm not going to feel as if I've moved anything very much. Yeah. No, I couldn't agree more. Well, Mark, thank you so much for taking the time. It's been really wonderful to, to speak with you and learn about uh, your rich career as well as, you know, the, the tremendous things that you were able to do at, at Pitt and look forward to uh, continuing the conversation offline and, and seeing you around Pittsburgh. Thank you very much, David. I've enjoyed it and hope it's helpful.